stories of the boyhood of Moses. The storyteller moves quickly from infancy to adulthood, like the narratives in the gospel stories. We read a summary of his childhood under Pharaoh's daughter that Pastor Betty touched on last week in chapter 2 and verse 10. And then immediately we read the statement in chapter 2, verse 11, that Moses had grown up. So from an infant to an adult in such a short time of space, at least Jesus had a point in his life when he was 12 years old and ended up in the temple. But whatever happened to Moses, the missing years are not for us to worry about. The question we can ask ourselves is God still hasn't showed up in the Exodus narrative. Not yet anyway, but he will. So Moses grows up. He's forced into exile, and we might ask, why? What did Moses do? And if you read some of the verses after what Pastor Betty stopped at last week, you find that he struck an Egyptian taskmaster, and he killed him. And then he became a man on the run. Pharaoh gets angry, and he wants to have Moses killed. So Moses is a man that's on the run, escaping the powers that be in Egypt, and remember, for most of the known world at that time, Pharaoh was God, and their ancient gods that they worshipped were the ones that most people feared. Uh, the God of Yahweh was not feared by a lot of people in that time, in that place. So he's on the run, and he ends up in a country called Midian. And in a country called Midian, he is found by a well. And by that well, he is still dressed in his Egyptian clothing because the girls recognize it. There's seven sisters that are bringing some flocks to be watered at that well. But also at that well are some angry shepherds that don't want to share the water with these women. And you know from Moses be killing that Egyptian taskmaster because he was beaten on a Hebrew slave that Moses does not want to sit back and do nothing. So he gets involved in that story, and he helps the seven sisters out, and he gets up marrying one of the seven sisters. So the man on the run begins to start a new family in a new country, and he's far, far, far away from the luxury of the palace of the pharaoh. There in Midian, he assumes the life of a shepherd underneath the governance of his father-in-law, Jethro, who's a Midian priest. So he has several children, and it looks like life is comfortable, life is relaxed, and he grows old in that land, eventually attaining the traditional age of retirement, and he's beginning to live in his ninth decade. The guy on that little clip, that animated film, does not look like he's 80-plus years old. They still have him looking like someone in his 30s, or maybe 40s, if you could push it. But he has good health, and we read that in the Exodus narrative, even as he's in the ninth decade of his life. And Moses is saying to himself, my life has been good, and I'm satisfied. But is Moses ever satisfied? Is Moses ever satisfied for those that have read his story? It's a good question for Moses, but it's a good question for us. Are we ever satisfied? Right? So you see in the book of Exodus that Moses is one who was never at home anywhere. Since he was an infant, they put him in a little ark and put him down the Nile River. They put him in the courts of the Pharaoh. They kill somebody, then he ends up in another country. He's not sure where he feels most comfortable, but he's always on a journey. He's always fighting for survival. Moses is one who's fighting for survival through his life, and he's trying to make... Uh, a conclusion of, of what is evil and what is good. Why do the 
unjust uh, sufferer. That's always in the back of his mind. And then we come to Exodus chapter 3, a familiar story. And God introduces us to what is called the theophany. A theophany is an appearance of God in our normal day activities where God just shows up, shows up out of the ordinary. He shows up. He didn't seek this. Moses did not seek this experience with God. But God sought Moses as God seeks us. And one day Moses is tending his sheep at the foot of what the scriptures say is a sacred mountain. And he looks in the distance and he sees something. And he sees a fire. And that fire is burning, but it's not being burnt out. It keeps on going. And for those of us that have read past this into Leviticus, you know that one of the jobs of the Levitical priesthood was to keep the fire always burning. One had to stay there and keep pumping wood, never let the fire burn out. I think the Apostle Paul, in speaking to Timothy, said, fan the flame of the Holy Spirit in your life. Keep it always going. We can learn from that. But up until this time, until this chapter that we're about to deal with, Pharaoh is the one that people fear, not Yahweh, not the God of Israel, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there's something happening back in Egypt. There's an anti-Pharaoh movement beginning to take place. And then we come to these last words of Exodus chapter 2. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. The ending of chapter 2 sets up the scene for Moses' later incredible encounter with God. It's not just a God. It's the God of their ancestry, their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Back in Egypt, the, Egyptian, the Israelites in the land of Egypt, in the land of slavery, in the land of bondage, they're praying up a storm. They had enough of the Pharaoh's oppression upon them and taking their freedom away. And they're not just praying. It's a special type of praying. He heard their groaning. He heard their cry. He was concerned about them. These guys are praying from the depths of their souls because they don't like what's going on. They see how people are being mistreated. They see how people are dying so that the Pharaoh can produce more production. There's no rest yet. It's 24-7 production, very much like our day if we get sucked in by the economy of produce, 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 produce. It takes life away. It zaps that life out. So that's how, what's going on there. And, and we're told that he's a God who remembers. He doesn't suffer like, from amnesia like we do. Amnesia. We, we don't have to have amnesia to suffer from amnesia. There's one guy that every time you ask him, says, do you remember? He says, no, I forgot. But he didn't really forget. He just doesn't want to dig deep down and remember. But our God is a God who remembers. God heard, hears and God remembers his covenant with his people. And these verses bridge, act as a bridge into the experience of Moses. Because the people prayed, God was working to see who he's going to get to lead them from bondage to freedom. 
from slavery to redemption. And the people are praying. They want to get out of Egypt. And they want to go to that land that God promised Abraham so many years ago that is now occupied for different people or by different people. But it also tells us the importance of prayer and the importance of what we call the prayer of anguish. Not that I just want people to get saved, but I feel what they're going through in their bondage, in their depth, and, and their suffering. It's something that God puts upon our hearts, even when we don't know them, that God puts that prayer of anguish in their hearts to pray. And that's what's happening back in Egypt. And they're praying for something that's more than just optimism. And uh, Rabbi Zacks has the, these words for us, the difference between optimism and hope. He says, I prefer the word hope to optimism. Optimism is the belief that things will get better. Hope, on the other hand, is the belief that together <laughs> we can make things better. Big difference there. Not that in the bye-bye we just wish that things are going to turn out a little bit better, but we do need each other to fulfill God's plan for us in order to make things together. So we have this God that is living. He's not the God of the dead. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob even insinuates that they are not dead. <laughs> But he's also the God that is active. He doesn't stand back. He was concerned about what was going on there, and he wants to get involved in their lives. So he is a holy God, yes, and this image of holiness and fire is, is there, but he's also an intimate God that wants to be involved in human life. He's both beyond humanity, and he's also with humanity. That's very important for us to understand as we come to this scene. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angels of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn out. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn out? That's like Curious George. Remember Curious George? That's something he would do. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses says, Echo me. Here I am. And then God says, Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, this is a good fear. It's not the type of fears that we've been dealing with on Wednesday night, but this is a good fear. See, God is clothed by the fire, but he's not the fire. <laughs> he's not the fire. And this is not a trance-like vision. He's not out of his body, Moses. Moses is conscious. He is awake. He is aware. He knows what's going on. It's not the Apostle Paul that I'm out of my body. If I was on the first heaven or the seventh heaven or whatever heaven, I do not know. It's none of those experiences where God takes you out and brings you somewhere else like Philip in the book of Acts. He knows what's going on. He sees this fire, and this fire amazes him. And he's alone. So God comes to us in our aloneness. And it's a regular working day for Moses. Nothing out of the ordinary. You don't have to take a day off to experience God. Aren't you happy? It's a regular working day. 
and God calls out Moses. Moses, which tells us that when God calls out twice, you better pay attention. Abraham, Abraham. So when God calls out to him with this credible experience, he initiates the liberation of Israel as he begins to talk with the one that he has selected to lead them from bondage to freedom. But remember, the importance of the story is that God makes the first move. God makes the first move. God put the fire there. God got Moses' attention. <laughs> and God doesn't begin to speak to Moses until Moses begins to investigate. So God put the fire there, and Moses needed to go to that fire. He needed to move and approach that fire. He needed to do, investigate that fire. It's what Jesus said, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, and knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. It's the same type, same type of spiritual lesson here that Moses need to approach that. So the first thing that gets Moses' attention is that he begins to see what is in front of him. See, the ancients believed that the first step into encountering any type of knowledge is to look. That's why we sang, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. And I know, and I pray with my eyes closed, and I worship with my eyes closed, but I want to open my eyes. I want to see the Lord, don't you? <laughs> and when God shows us himself, we don't stay back. We move towards him. We begin to investigate what's going on. The Gospel of John is all about seeing and believing. Seeing, you can even add seeing, hearing, believing there. The second step that he had to do was to take a closer look. And he begins to move towards that fire. He begins to investigate what's going on. He begins to inquire of the Lord. This serves to get Moses' attention. Does God have our attention this evening? Is the launching pad for what comes next. <laughs> the call, the commission, the challenge of ministry for Moses all starts with him inquiring, investigating, what in the heck is this fire in the middle of nowhere? Now, God uses different things to get our attention. He used a donkey to speak to Balaam. <laughs> he used an angel to speak to a young girl called Mary. He wrestled with Jacob. So the method and the mode in which God comes to us and God challenges us is not always the same. But it always has the same type of theme. This is the way I'm speaking to you. Are you willing to investigate it? Or are you just going to rest on our laurels and just say, okay, that's a nice burning bush. It'll burn out someday and just walk away and go home. Moses could have done that, but he didn't. He didn't. And Moses answers God when God speaks to him. He says, here I am. Echo me is Italian, all in one word. Echo me. Here I am. Then Moses gets bolder. He approached enough until God spoke. Then as he was getting closer, God says, halt, stop. Don't go any further. And he instructs him to remove his sandals for the place in which he is standing, his holy ground. It's just a bunch of dirt. What makes it holy ground is the presence of God. Well, we spend that whole season of doing that midweek study on, on the importance of the themes of the Old Testament and of Scripture, even in the New Testament, 
that quick survey of it. And presence is an overarching theme for the whole Bible. It's the presence of the Lord that determines how we worship, how we love each other, how we have compassion with one another. It's a sacred moment that Moses is experiencing a sacred place. In an ordinary day, doing an ordinary job, in the midst of the wilderness, God encounters him. Muslims and Japanese still remove their shoes when they enter their places of worship. The Israelites' priests performed barefoot as they did the task of the priestly role that they were assigned. It's a sign of respect to remove the footwear in the presence of someone who's more superior than you. Remember in the book of Joshua later on, what Moses does here, Joshua does. Before he's the, the commander of the Lord in Joshua chapter 5, right? What does Joshua do? He takes off his shoes. And he's trying to figure out if God is on his side or God's on the other person's side. And God says, who's on my side? Who's on my side? Who's on the Lord's side? See, the gravity of Moses' gesture is weightier to stand in direct presence of God. And most people don't survive in Scripture. But Moses survives more than one time here. The church needs to recapture this moment of awe that Moses experienced. Um, for the imminent, relational, the fun, the joy that we can experience at this moment of God. But sometimes we need to stop and investigate the awesomeness of God and stand in awe in the presence of God and let him speak. And we be quiet for a moment so that we may hear his will spoken into our lives. See, God has access to anywhere. Where God is is what determines that the place is holy. It's not lumber. It's not bricks. It's not siding. It's not drywall. It's God that makes a place holy. And when God's people come together in God's name, there he arrives on the scene because he's a God of arrival. He's always arrived just in time. So Moses, the abandoned child raised by the high society of Egypt, recognizes that the voice belonged to his ancestor God. That's important. That I remember the faith of my fathers. That I remember the stories of the past. Not that I lived in the stories of the past. Because I need to move on, and Moses needs to move on. But he has to know that the God who was faithful is still faithful in this moment as he leads us into his future. He hides his face in fear, and, and he feels the heat of the fire. He flees, feels the glow of God. He feels the glory of God. The glory of God. Where it just immobilizes you. You don't come any closer. God had to say that once, and that was enough. And Moses froze there and began to worship the Lord of heaven and earth. The glory of God. That it doesn't matter what meal I'm waiting to eat, uh, that can wait. I can skip whatever meal is awaiting me or whatever bedtime is awaiting me this evening because when the glory of God shows up, we stop and we seek his face and we seek his will. So God reveals himself to Moses and he... Moses begins to discover, begins to maul his calling, and begins to think this all over. 
in his life. And would you know that God will use his role as a shepherd later on to give him the capability and the instruction to lead the people of Israel. He'd also use the wisdom of his father-in-law. So it's good that he can pay attention to his father-in-law as well. But one question that, that burned the heart of Moses is why do the innocents suffer? Why did God call Moses of all the people that he called? Wasn't there anybody back in Egypt that are praying up the storm, that are praying with anguish of their heart, that are saying, oh God, would you deliver us from these Egyptians? Isn't there anybody there that can take the mantle and lead us away from this place of bondage and this mess that Joseph got us into? Yes, we were hungry at one time, but this has gone too far. <laughs> they not only took all our money, they fed us for a few years, and then we got stuck being their slaves. Watch out who you sell yourself out to. <laughs> they never say the God of jo Joseph. That's interesting, isn't it? So we see this Moses that is wrestling with these ideas. He burns with his heart for justice. He burns with this heart of how people are maltreated and ill-treated. And he wants to get involved. He doesn't stand idle. He's not a bench warmer. He's not a spectator. He gets off his laurels and gets involved in the actions. Some of his actions weren't called for. He didn't have to kill that guy. But he, he was there when the women needed to be rescued. But Moses belongs to the tradition of Abraham. And this is what you find in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Shall the judge of all the earth not do justice? And if we go to the prophet Micah, then what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? That is a caricature of the life of Moses. Justice, mercy, walking humbly with God. And that's what God calls us to. See, the people of Israel and Egypt were not going to be helped by the Egyptian gods. The story of their gods is they're always fighting, they're always creating chaos, they're, they're just, it's just a mess. And neither of the gods of our days in secularism or paganism are going to help us in our journey because they just throw confusion and chaos wherever they go. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our, Father Jesus, of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is a God of justice. That's the difference. He doesn't seek chaos. He seeks order. He seeks peace. He seeks reconciliation. He seeks renewal. He seeks restoration. He seeks reformation is a word that they're using now amongst Christians. Do you get the picture? He's different than all the other gods. And he is the one that wants to turn the world of the Pharaoh upside down because it's a world of injustice in a world of bondage. But the God of scriptures is a just God, as I said, and he cares for men and women who have a heart for justice and for holiness. Could that be perhaps why Moses was called? I don't know if you guys ever think of that. You think he just appeared in a burning bush and just followed the call and what the call was? It was the call of just for salvation, but doesn't salvation involve justice? Doesn't salvation involve worship? Remember when he goes back, and we'll deal with that in the future, when he says to the Pharaoh that you should let my people go, that freedom isn't the ultimate freedom. Do you let my people go so that they may worship me? 
So it's not just I'm saved from my sins, I'm saved from hell, but I'm saved to worship God. And if we don't understand that, then I have to throw the question, are you really saved? <laughs> Hello? It's a hard question. It's twofold there. It's not just saved to be saved. It's saved for justice and for worship of the Holy One who created all things. See, we put a lot of weight on the burning bush. But before the burning bush, Moses had a story, and God seen Moses. God seen the character that this guy's not going to stand by and let injustice rule. That he's going to get involved and he's going to do something about it. And Moses is the, is the one that he chooses to do that. And God begins to talk to him again. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. In other words, God says, I see. We always question, does God see? And what does God say? I see. God says, I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. God hears. I am concerned. God is concerned about their suffering. And then it says, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, which now is home to the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, and whatever other sites in line. <laughs> and now the cry of the Israelites have reached us. When we pray the prayer of anguish, God begins to do something. When we get serious in our prayer and God sees the pouring out of our souls, whether with tears or whether with emotions, God then begins to listen to our groaning and our cry for help and release from a government or from a country or from a world that seeks to oppress us and keep us down. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. I think God sees what's going on in the world. I don't know if he sees us praying the prayer of anguish, but God knows what's going on in the world. And I know there are prayer movements all over the world that are praying the prayer of anguish. And the prayer of anguish is what led to the holy experience that Moses encountered. If you take that out of the equation, I don't know if this experience would have happened. Oh, are you following me on that? You can't get to renewal without a prayer of anguish in the body of Christ. It's what that late Leonard Ravenhill called the prayer of being in the delivery room when a woman is trying to give birth to a child. Anguish. But that anguish, that mourning, that crying, we know the psalmist turns to joy in the morning when you get to the promised land. To be joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. But it all started with anguish. And sometimes we get so caught up on the story of the burning bush that we forget the story that surrounds it. The cry of the people. The desperation of the people. The freedom that they long after 400 long years under the thumb of a ruler called Pharaoh. And then the last verse for this evening. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people to Israelites out of, out of Egypt. God's been saying, I, 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 and now he turns to Moses and says, you, <laughs> you, you go. 
Don't you like that? Of course God's going to go with them. But a lot of us would like to just sit back and say, oh, thank you, God, you just go ahead. <laughs> you do all the work. But God always calls us humans into the equations to do our part. It's that participation that we believe, especially in the holiness movement, that God, yes, initiates, but God calls us to go alongside of him and to do this with him. So the story is that Moses says, here I am, echo me. And then he's going to end up in a discussion that I'll leave for Pastor Betty next week. He says, but who am I? Did you ever notice that in Scripture when God calls, and even Isaiah, here I am, and then there's a com confrontation and there's the objection? You can't be speaking to me, Lord. You know those words from Robert De Niro from Taxi, are you talking to me, Lord? Are you talking to me? Are you sure you're talking to me? Do you know what I did? I'm a man on a run. They're trying to kill me. The Pharaoh's after me. Are you talking to me? And I will leave that for Pastor Betty. But Bernie Bushes show up in many places in our lives. And it's the same result, life-changing. And when Bernie Bush experiences show up in our life, it doesn't show up to make our lives easier. It shows up to make our lives more meaningful. You follow me? Somehow the gospel that's sometimes preached on the television tube is all about making your life easier. It's not about having a life that is easier, but having a life that is meaningful. That despite the hardships that I go through in life and I have to struggle through in life, my life is full of meaning because of God in my life. You follow me? Life, the life of Moses, the example of Moses here says sometimes we need to stop, we need to observe, we need to look, we need to investigate, we need to inquire, we need to move until God says stop, and then when God says stop, listen to what he's saying to us. And then we need to take up the challenge that he has for us. I'll leave that for Betty next week. <laughs> yeah, but God, God, God is with him. He wanted to show him that. But as in closing, right now, as the worship team goes, and I can only speak about my calling because I know my calling. <laughs> and, and even though it was 35 years ago, these are two things that we need to know, that when God calls us as sinners from a life of sin to a life of holiness, he calls us into his kingdom. Okay, that's called salvation. He calls us from the life in the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He calls us from sinners to saints. Paul calls the church of Corinth and all their mess saints in Corinth. Okay, you follow me? But he also doesn't call us just to salvation. God calls us into service in his kingdom. So there is a twofold thing there that not only is our salvation salvation, our salvation, every one of us has a vocation in the kingdom of God. In other words, we all have a place of service in the kingdom of God. Everyone. We did that with the Made to Made for More series. So salvation without vocation is impossible and vocation without salvation is impossible. Both of them go hand in hand and we need to recapture that dynamic to be the dynamic church that God wants us to be. But I can say before we sing this song is that 35 plus years ago, if anyone told me that I would be one day preaching God's word, 
gone to college and university, have a BA and an MA, and I had the mouth of a sailor, or worse, and that I was able to get a minister's license and graduate and end up being ordained in Switzerland in 1992, I believe, or 1990, somewhere around there. And that I would get a chance to serve the Lord, privilege to serve the Lord in Switzerland and Italy and Canada and various provinces now. That I would say, you better get a baseball cap and you better put that cap down in direct sunlight because that's impossible. And if I ever visit, and I have visited my old circle of friends at times, they can't be fooled. They know the person I was. They know the things that I have done. And they know that something extraordinary must have happened to me. And that's not for my credit, that's just for God's glory. Because I knew that I wasn't just saved, I knew that I was called. And whether I was serving behind a pulpit or in a church or in a compassionate ministry, wherever you send me, Lord, or with heroin addicts in the middle of the streets in Italy, I knew I had a calling on my life. I wasn't saved just to be saved. You follow me? And I think a lot of us have that story. How different our lives would have been if we followed the other path instead of God's path. Aren't you grateful that God stops us? It might have not been a burning bush. It could have been just a roll of potatoes speaking back to you, right? But God speaks to us. Let's pay attention to that. And he wants us to get involved with the things of his kingdom. He wants us to take pleasure in the ministry of prayer and especially the prayer of anguish and i know a lot a lot of people maybe can't get into this type of prayer because it is a special type of prayer when you actually feel what god's feeling and i think one of the leaders of the world vision uh, had that prayer break my heart god with the things that break yours that's a powerful prayer and you begin to see the people as god sees people and no longer how other people see people and that's a good place to be, is it not? Mm. Is it not? Aren't you glad that Christ has given us the victory? Amen. Aren't you glad that he is the one that has defeated sin, has defeated the power of death, and that he's still calling us, right? So it starts with seeing. Goes to inquiring. It goes to approaching. And goes to encountering a holy God. So as we sing this chorus, we are standing on holy ground.